0: Today's global consumer is very clear in their demand for safe, affordable and sustainable protein to continue to meet these rising expectations requires both leadership and collaboration with food chain stakeholders, academia and the veterinary community. Merck Animal Health is pleased to amplify the voices of leaders throughout the protein supply chain here on this podcast, caring for animals and creating trust. So pleased that you're joining us for caring for animals and creating trust my name is tim Hamrich, and i'll be your guide as we explore the leadership that's taking place throughout animal agriculture today you and i dear listener get to be a bit of a fly on the wall so to speak listening to two experts in sustainability in animal agriculture and in animal welfare in this episode we cover the importance of listening and bringing all stakeholders to the table when it comes to sustainability also some hot button animal welfare issues and what sustainability looks like across all of the animal agriculture value chains. Featured in today's episode is a familiar voice to your regular podcast listeners, Dr. Angela Basinger.
1: I am the animal welfare lead for North America for Merck Animal Health. I'm on the Veterinary and Consumer Affairs team at Merck Animal Health and we focus on everybody from producers to retail and food service in Being able to talk about issues and discussions across the food chain, as well as we do also delve into working with the veterinary side of the world and then consumer side of the world. So we kind of try to piece the entire food chain together.
0: Joining Angela is OSI Group Senior Vice President and Chief Sustainability Officer, Nicole Johnson-Hoffman.
2: I'm Nicole Johnson-Hoffman, I'm a Senior Vice President at OSI Group, which is a further processor of primarily meat products. Uh, we sell our products around the world to um, the world's biggest brands, including um, the world's biggest quick service restaurant operators. I'm also our company's Chief Sustainability Officer. And in that capacity, I've also served as the President of the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef and the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, And I've been active in the roundtables for sustainable beef in Europe and in Canada, and also um, working on sustainability roundtables in Asia and Australia.
0: Those sustainability roundtables you just mentioned are a great launching off point for today's discussion. Nicole provides a little bit more of a background on these programs.
2: Sure. The beef sustainability roundtables came into being because a group of people who I think showed a lot of foresight understood that you can't uh, mandate practices or dictate practices to beef producers around the world. Um, And there needs to be a multi-stakeholder collaborative approach taken in order to improve beef sustainability um, and do that in ways that work for everybody. So the, the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef is over 10 years old. I've been involved with it almost from the beginning. Um, And it's been a labor of love to try and spread that message to beef producing areas of the world that are struggling with unique sustainability issues that occur in their countries or in their environments or in their regions and that need to be handled uniquely for their producers. So it's been a really great experience trying to bring together the people who sincerely care about sustainable beef production and improving sustainability in beef production, and who also acknowledge that these are complicated issues, and that you really do have to deal in the complexity, you can't deal in just the generalities, mm-hmm. and that you have to work together in a way that may be a bit slower than some might like, but is actually ultimately going to be much more effective than if a small group of people tries to dictate terms to others.
0: One key to these roundtable groups is making sure that there's full representation from all stakeholders at the table.
2: Well, the sustainability roundtables for the beef industry work pretty much the same all around the world. They have to have representation from all of the stakeholder groups. If you don't have representation from all of the major stakeholder groups, you don't have a roundtable. So we require that producers be part of the discussion and be fully engaged in the discussion, but we also require that a roundtable includes representation from NGO groups, for example, stakeholders who care a lot about the industry, but who are maybe outside of the industry. We include retailers and major brands that sell or sell beef products or care about beef products, and then we include beef processors and packers like my company.
1: So, Nicole, I'm going to ask you a question based on that. Why is it important that we have people from our communities, people from civil society, if you will, involved in these roundtables with the producers, with the retail and packers. Why is it important to have them there?
2: Thanks, Angela. I I think that you've hit on the most important aspect here, um, and that is, first of all, credibility. Our work has no credibility if our critics don't participate in the work. Why does anyone care if a bunch of beef industry representatives get together and set up standards, but then never ask our communities if those standards meet their expectations. We have to engage with our communities and our critics in order to understand what they care about and what they expect from us as participants in this industry and as members of the community. Now, our industry, uh, and let's just call it agriculture broadly, not just meat production, has undergone what I would call a fundamental renegotiation of our deal with our communities over the last 20 years. Our communities in the U.S. 20 years ago were happy to leave the details of what we did and how we did it to the industry, to farmers, to processors, to retailers. Uh, And I think we can all agree that's no longer the case. Our communities care deeply about what we do and how we do it. They have strong views about how we produce the food that people in our communities consume, and they want to have a say. And I think that's fully appropriate. I also think it's a reflection of trust. You know, I think maybe there was a day when our industry could say to people, you don't need to know how we do this, and maybe you don't even want to know. So trust me, and I'll just take care of it for you. Trust me, and I'll take care of it for you no longer carries today. day. We have got to be transparent. We have got to engage in a two way conversation and we have to be open to feedback on the decisions that we make.
1: So we have to take constructive criticism based on our neighbors, you know, people from our local community, what they don't maybe don't understand about agriculture. We need to be able to listen, and that's the key word listen, (laughs) and then make a connection with them. Before we can gain their trust. Because a lot of times in agriculture, generally, we will take a very science-based approach and very defensive approach. And projecting into 2021 and beyond, I think everybody is starting to realize we need to step back and listen. And then figure out how we can meet, as you know Nicole was saying, our community's expectations. That doesn't always mean we're gonna implement everything they think they want, but we have to at least sit there, think about it, consider it, and figure out what is going to work with our livestock operations and meet what they expect of us.
2: I think you've said that really beautifully. And I think it's important for us to be clear that we're not talking about animal agriculture or agriculture in general, Going to the average layperson and asking them how we should do all the complicated things that we do and what the answers to all of our problems are. We know they don't know all those answers. Uh, We know we need scientists and experts in animal husbandry and experts in agriculture to guide our path. And we also know that our communities have an expectation that we're taking care of business even when they're not looking. So while we're asking for a dialogue and while we're welcoming this request for more transparency and our listening skills when our communities do express opinions about how we do what we do, we're also actively seeking out the issues in our own supply chains and are proactively addressing them. We're not waiting for consumers to discover our problems. We're not asking consumers to shop their way out of sustainability issues in this world. Consumers don't have to do that. It's my job to make sure that I'm addressing the sustainability problems and challenges in my own supply chain. Hopefully, when consumers come to me or when stakeholders come to me and say, hey, we've got a question about how you are addressing this particular issue in your supply chain, I will be able to say, oh, I'm glad you asked. I've done the work. I know what that issue is. Here's how we're looking at it. Here are the changes we're planning to make or the changes we have made. Um, Maybe sometimes, though, I'll say, wow, that's not an issue I knew about. Let me go back and do my work. And I'll come back to you with, you know, next steps and further thoughts. So, you know, there's two concepts here that I want to make really clear. One is that we're open and transparent and we're engaged in a dialogue Two is that we're also taking responsibility for proactively addressing our own problems that we know are there or that we're discovering and aren't waiting for someone else to supply those answers.
0: An important component to sustainability in animal agriculture is, of course, animal welfare. And maybe a good place to dive into that topic is the recent feed yard animal welfare audit conducted by the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, or NCBA.
1: It happened earlier this year, and it is basically an audit that they have modeled after the BQA Plus program. So it's basically going through all the different requirements that producers currently go through when they get BQA certified. And it's just doing what Nicole was talking about, of being able to document that and then provide that in the format of having somebody come out and audit your feed yard to verify that you're doing what you say you're doing. It's not unlike the programs in the other species, like the swine industry has done the PQA plus program that eventually evolved into the common swine industry audit that is done across all the age ranges of swine production. This with the NCBA's Feed yard audit is just focused on feed yards right now, because that's the easiest level by which we can verify things that are going on. Because the cattle production in the U.S. is so enormous, going from the feed yard, then to the stalker, then back to the cow-calf folks is going to take a lot of time, because we don't have that documented traceability, if you will, through that system yet. And I know there's there's a lot of discussions for pros and cons for doing that, but it's one of those steps that, as Nicole said, is incremental and will happen over time.
2: Angela, I just want to really celebrate this step forward from the NCBA. You know, there's a great theory of change management that says you know, when you need to change, you don't start with what all the things that aren't working. You don't start with sort of the biggest problems and say, let's try and uh, get a, a complete reversal of some negative situation. You start by looking for what works, and then you try and build on what has worked. And NCBA's leadership here in using the BQA program, which by gosh has worked and has worked well for so many years, to build on that and to be able to use that success to try and share information about practices at feedlots and to provide documentation of the good practices at feedlots is a really smart choice and a, a great use of our learning from BQA and I'm just I'm delighted to see it the independent american beef producer is a gift to the world in terms of producing the highest quality protein you can imagine you know in, in amazing efficiencies and food safety and animal welfare. So, uh, yeah, it's for sure different among the different species, and that's okay. Angela and I were laughing as we were talking yesterday about how sustainability is work for grownups. It's work for serious people, serious people who are willing to delve into detail and who are willing to deal with the real complexities of agriculture and who aren't looking for easy answers or slogans or catchphrases.
1: And you don't have to be at the goal. Wherever you're at currently, and producers do this naturally, they look at how they can improve all the time because that's part of the efficiency of what they do. You know, if they take care of their animals, that's going to provide to their bottom line of producing more and better. And that's just part of what producers do. Now it's just making sure that you can tell your story of what you're doing and document it. Unfortunately, paperwork is part of life, no matter what segment of agriculture you're in.
0: Well, paperwork crosses all segments of agriculture, and and so do really all of these topics. They're not just unique to beef. Sustainability and animal welfare are also very relevant in all animal ag industries.
1: On the swine and poultry side, of course, they have their sustainability roundtables as well. Poultry... Has their poultry and egg sustainability roundtable that I'm in the animal welfare part of that, of course. And there's the International Poultry Welfare Alliance that is working hand in hand with the roundtable for poultry and egg to come up with standards by which the poultry industry can measure and show their progress around welfare issues. But the pork side works. As if you'll, if you go to their website, if you go to pork.org and look at the different segments that they're working on under sustainability, it's the same across the board for the different buckets that we're all trying to show where we currently are and where we're progressing to. From an animal welfare perspective, I guess we could delve into now some of the hot button topics or focuses that we have within the species groups that uh, I know there's a lot of discussion on right now. Some of those around dairy are going to be lameness. Some of the swine issues, of course, continue to be gestation stalls and the length of time at which those bread sows can be in those stalls or those individual pens. And, Poultry side, it's going to be the discussion now is a lot around slow growing broilers over the very fast growing broilers that we currently have in commercial farms.
2: Yeah, I think that you've really hit on some of the biggest issues of the day in animal welfare. I think one of the challenges that we struggle with is that marketing can be the enemy of animal welfare advancement. When we have companies that hit upon a particular Animal husbandry practice that they either think is bad, and they want to claim that you know none of the animals in their own supply chain have been subject to that practice, or um, a particular practice that they think is good, and they want to make marketing claims around that. We end up in not great places. We end up in decisions that are driven by marketers and are not necessarily driven by what is best for the animal, and maybe don't take into account economic realities for farmers, or community standards in the particular communities in which the animals are being raised. Right.
1: An example of that would be the slow-growing broilers, because that's the hot topic right now of if you want to change the genetics of the poultry industry to slow-growing, that takes you know, more time, more space, and more food because they're living longer and consuming more protein and you know that's the big discussion with some of the latest research that's come out around slow-growing broilers
2: yeah there are sure aspects to genetics like slow-growing breeds of broilers that are interesting and that might capture the imagination um, or capture the interest of stakeholders I don't want to belittle that interest. I think it comes from a great place. These are important questions to be discussed and worked through. But we also have to be honest with our stakeholders about the trade-offs. So if it takes a bird twice as long to come to market weight, it's possible that that may have some good animal welfare benefits. You know, that would have to be documented. We'd need to understand the science around that. But it's possible. I mean, that may be the case. But there will certainly be environmental and other sustainability trade offs if every animal has to grow twice as long before they're brought to market weight. So, like I say, these are topics for intelligent conversation, for people to come together with transparency and honesty and a willingness to work through the tricky stuff. I also care a lot about farm families. And sometimes, you know, we make changes to how we want animals housed, for example, when we are working in animal agriculture. And we don't necessarily do the math on the impact to farm families who may have taken out loans to build certain kinds of housing that aren't even paid off yet before somebody else comes in and says, well, you know, actually, I kind of like this style of housing better. And I'm not sure, but I think maybe the animal welfare outcomes might be better how about you borrow another $3 million to convert your barns to this new style of housing? That is a conversation we can have. We can absolutely have that conversation, but we have to have it with the needs of those farm families taken into account. And there have to be questions asked about how they're going to finance that, what the impacts on their families will be if we make this change, and then what is the outcome for the animal welfare, and how significant is it? So I love these conversations. I welcome them, but they do need to be had by grown-ups. and they don't want to be driven by marketing claims or, you know, cute commercials on the internet. That is not a great way to make choices, impact so many people and so many animals.
1: Yeah. Part of sustainability is the farmers, the producers as well. We want to sustain them as well as all the other buckets within the sustainability picture.
2: I think, you know, let's talk a little bit about farm communities, and let's talk specifically about the U.S. I will offer my personal opinion, and that is that farm communities are the backbone of the U.S. I grew up in one in rural Minnesota. I've lived in them in different parts of the country in the U.S. I know how important agriculture and animal agriculture is to those communities, I want those communities to continue to thrive. I want the people to be able to stay there, raise their kids there, and engage in the work that they do that helps feed the world. That matters to me. And so we need to take them into account when we work on sustainability issues. I'm not saying their needs come first, but I'm saying they're absolutely one of the needs that needs to get considered and discussed.
1: Absolutely. And I... I was raised on a swine, cow calf, and the family had poultry, both layers and and broilers, and I had sheep for my FFA project. So, overall, I am probably so biased toward the producer side that in my day-to-day job, I know I'm typically looking at things from that perspective. And it's taken me a long time personally to set back and say okay I have to understand what the community thinks of the things that we do in agriculture I have to set back and try to be open minded to understand what their requests are and what how they view what I do every day because that's important I need to make sure that my ethical decisions every day it may not match what theirs are, but I need to be able to listen and try to match, to find that connection so that what I do to help producers out in the field, what producers do every day to supply protein, you know, to the community, we're doing the right thing. and And animal welfare is just my mode of trying to do that. And I think going forward in the future, we're going to have to be patient, be persistent, and be ready to evolve. And we're not always going to like that. <laughs> Human beings need to be accepting of change. And that's never going to, and this is corny, but that's never going to change. So, yeah, we need to embrace the community. And you'll notice that Nicole and I are using the word community instead of the consumer because they are our community. They're not just somebody out there to buy our product, they're people that we should generally care about what they think about.
2: I think it's important to say you know, nobody's advocating that we go to a focus group every time we need to solve a problem in animal agriculture, animal husbandry is complicated and hard and is the life's work of some very, very smart people. And I am delighted to be able to trust in those smart people when they're making choices about animal husbandry. We've solved a lot of problems in American agriculture in particular, and I'm really proud of the problems we've solved and the really great solutions we've come up with. Some of our solutions, though are no longer acceptable to our communities. And when our communities come back to us and say, thank you for explaining that euthanasia method to me. Thank you for telling me transparently about how you accomplish that particular unwanted task. I don't like your solution. And I'm gonna ask you as a member of your community to go back and try and solve that problem in a different way that is less objectionable to me and to our community standards. I think we have to say, okay, we're going to go back and try again. And, you know, that's not fun. We're pretty proud of our solutions and we're pretty proud of how smart we are and the, the hard, hard work that we've done to get where we are. But when our community tells us they don't like our solutions and that we better go back and try again, I think we better go back and try again.
1: And another great example of that is pain mitigation for livestock. You know, for years, we've castrated animals. And quite frankly, I mean, growing up with pigs and cattle, you know, we castrated without pain mitigation. Going forward, we're being asked to do that differently. And although in the United States, there aren't any labeled products to use to mitigate the pain, veterinarians do have the option under uh, some federal guidance called AMDUCA, the Animal Medicinal Drug Use Compliance Act, that they can, through their education and through their knowledge of these products, they can use some of them to mitigate pain. A good example is in dehorning or disbudding of dairy calves. I know a large percentage of the population out there in the dairy world are now actively doing pain mitigation as they're disbudding those calves. There's a lot of discussion around castration of piglets, and we're actively looking at trying to figure out protocols that the FDA will accept to measure pain. So, the companies that want to bring a product out, a labeled product for pigs, they have a protocol that they can follow to get that approved through the FDA. There's just so many things going on right now around pain mitigation for all these surgical necessary procedures that we do on farms that, you know, things are changing to where we will be able to provide, if that procedure needs to be done, we can give them some pain relief. So that's a big one in my bucket right now is looking at what we can do to help the producers go through this process as we transition into being able to provide pain relief to the animals.
2: So if we talk again about that theory of change management that says find what works and exploit that to drive change, what works in animal agriculture is the passion of the people who are involved in this industry around the world for the betterment of the industry. I have not seen this kind of service to the industry ethic in any other industry I've worked in, and I've worked in a few. You know, I'd like to claim that in North America we're more community-minded and you know, service-oriented in our agriculture industry than anywhere else on the planet, because we sure are service-oriented. But, but I see a similar commitment to service to the industry all over the world. And, you know, we have great companies like Merck and other animal health companies and scientists at our universities and people who work for companies like mine who are happy to give me the time and the freedom to devote to serving our industry, to solving these problems in new ways. Let's use that because it is a resource that you don't have in other industries when you're working on sustainability problems.
0: I hope you found this conversation on sustainability and animal welfare both insightful and invigorating. And we hope you'll take that enthusiasm and use it to get involved. There are certainly plenty of opportunities to do so.
1: I would really like to see a lot more producers. If they're sitting here listening and say, well, there's nothing I can do about this topic. I would absolutely say that's incorrect. You can get involved in the roundtables. There's a way for you to do that. You just have to contact your industry organizations and find out who is currently representing producers on those roundtables and have discussions with them or actively volunteer to be involved. I mean, it's not a closed group of people. There is transition all the time in these roundtables and opportunities for producers to be involved. And, you know, quite frankly, it's, it's really invigorating. Every time I get involved with one of these roundtables, I come away more invigorated and with more ideas than I, I think I contribute a lot of the time. But they just need to become part of the discussion. If I can help get you plugged in in these places, I will do so just uh, give me a call.
2: I really want to second what Angela said. We have some really powerful, effective, action-oriented groups around the world working on the sustainability challenges in animal agriculture. And I would urge anybody who has an interest in this topic, whether you're a producer or a processor or Um, somebody who works in an allied industry or an NGO or is just a community member and stakeholder and cares about these issues, find the group that already exists, that's working on what you care about in your part of the world with the species or species that you care about. I would also ask companies and organizations that are Concerned about sustainability in agriculture and in animal agriculture, to resist the temptation to form your own groups. We still see uh, groups that discover sustainability issues and decide that they are going to be the ones who convene a brand new group to solve beef sustainability. And bless them. I love the passion, I love the interest, but we do not need more disparate, competing voices trying to speak to, let's say beef producers in North America about sustainability. That just makes their lives that much harder. Anybody who cares about sustainability and real progress, please find one of these powerful action oriented groups that already exists and lend your voice and your money to these efforts. I think that's how we're gonna drive real change Find one that's working and support that. Resist the temptation to reinvent and to put your own particular brand and stamp on
0: Well, thank you so much to Dr. Angela Basinger and Nicole Johnson-Hoffman for bringing this important conversation to the industry. If you want more information about any of the groups referenced, we have some links in the show notes to this episode that you should be sure to check out. We appreciate you tuning in for Caring for Animals and Creating Trust. Make sure that you're subscribed to the show on your favorite podcast player. You should be able to find us on all of them. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. We'll be back very soon with more examples of leadership in animal agriculture.